Uh, we'll now hear today's scripture reading. After that, I'll be back for today's teaching. Good morning. Today, God speaks to us from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 5, 23 to 24, 27 to 28, 34 to 36, 43 to 48, and chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, and verse 18. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, it's Thank you, Aaron, for that long reading. Uh, I, throughout this act series, I felt like I've been trying to piece together like a movie trailer, uh, trying to take these big stories and cram it down into like something digestible. Uh, he did a great job with all of that. Thank you. Um, this week, being the election, God decided that you and I needed to hear from Acts 10. And this week, of all weeks, it's crazy to me that this passage on Acts 10 is about unity. Given all that we have going on right now in our nation, all the turbulence that many are feeling, God's decided that we need to talk about unity from Acts 10. And here's what uh, I want to just frame today with. What I'm about to say, I think, for some of us here in the room, maybe some of us online, uh, it might make your stomach turn a little bit. Are you ready for it? 
If you are a Christian and a Democrat, you have more in common with a staunch Trump-supporting Republican than you do with someone who is a fellow Democrat but not a Christian, and vice versa. If you are a progressive coastal elite who is a Christian, you have more in common with a Christian conservative from middle America than you do other coastal elites who are not Christians. A successful American New York City investment banker has more in common with a Christian who's a day laborer from Mexico than they do other bankers who are not Christians. I could go on and on, but why is that the case? Why is it the case that we have more in common with other Christians who are radically different than ourselves than we do those who we might more easily identify with? It's because for the Christian, since Christ has unified you to himself, you are now also, as a result, unified to others. Others who are drastically different than yourself. And if you don't believe that to be true, then up front I will just say, you don't understand the nature of the gospel. For the gospel does not just impact one's relationship to God. Rather, when one has had a real encounter with Jesus, they are connected not only to just Jesus, but also others who have had that same encounter. And in our passage today, we get a picture of what God does to accomplish an extraordinary unity where there should otherwise be deep division. And today, of course, we're going to continue our study looking at the book of Acts, uh, extraordinary through the ordinary, looking at one of the most pivotal events in redemptive history, which is the conversion of Cornelius, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of God. Through this story, we're going to learn about the depths of unity that God has accomplished in Christ, and there's really two. I've got two points today, not three Two points. Number one, that we've been unified to Christ as we trust in him. And two, that we're also unified to each other. right, let's look at both of those things. First, unity with Christ. Now last week, if you were with us, we looked at the conversion of uh, Saul, who's also known as the Apostle Paul. In that story, uh, Paul has this confrontational encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. uh, And as a result of that encounter with Jesus, Paul's entire life ends up changing, radically uh, being transformed. And he goes on, uh, he goes from being one of the most ardent opponents of the Christian church to then becoming one of its most important figures. And what we looked at last week uh, is really what it means to be a Christian, We considered how one should uh, think about what it means to have this encounter, this conversion with Jesus. But even after having thought about that and talked about it last week, I'm curious, if I were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian, how would you answer that question? Because I think for many, if asked what it means to be a Christian, many would respond with a list of things that Christians do. However, to be a Christian is not just about what we do, but rather, more fundamentally, to be a Christian is to consider who we are, not just what we do. Because all the things that a Christian might do, things like going to church, reading our Bibles, being a good person, all those things, those are good and right things. But those are about what we do. They aren't fundamentally about who we are. And Cornelius 
is another great example of what it means to be a Christian, where someone's uh, very essence changes. Now, who is Cornelius? Uh, He's a really interesting man. Uh, We're told that he is a centurion or a military, a Roman military officer. Uh, Scholars note that these positions were often filled by men who would have worked their way up uh, up through the ranks. Uh, And the reason why that matters is because Cornelius then would have been uh, likely a man who has worked very hard for the position that he's had. And through this hard work, In his extended military service, he's likely accumulated a significant amount of financial assets as well as prestige. Plus, top of all of that, if it's not obvious, he's also a Roman citizen, which came with its own privileges. But not only was Cornelius an accomplished, well-to-do Roman commander, he was also, we're told, a God-fearer. Now, that term referred to Gentiles, uh, who were those who, those who were not ethnically part of Israel, uh, but still embraced the God of Israel. And so, as a result, Cornelius, he would have uh, attended Sabbath worship services in the local synagogue. Uh, he would have kept all of the Jewish dietary laws. Uh, back in verse 2 of our passage, it tells us that he, was, that he generously gave to the poor and that he prayed regularly to God. However, because he was a Gentile, not part of the nation of Israel, he was never fully admitted into the Jewish community. Yet nonetheless, he was committed to the God of Israel. And so Cornelius, to put that all together, was a powerful, wealthy, moral man. Kind of cream of the crop, so to speak. And now here's what I find to be interesting about this man. You know, last week we looked at a a different man. We looked at Saul, also known as Paul, and now we're looking at Cornelius. Now, last week we considered that that Paul, he was also cream of the crop. Paul refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the best of the best. He knew and followed the law of God like no one else did. And now here, again, we have Cornelius, a man who was so devout That verse 4 tells us that angels came and said that they have seen the offerings that he has given to God, the prayers that he's offered to God, that they're true offerings to God. This was an impressive man. Paul and Cornelius were both impressive men. These accomplished men who worked hard, achieved much moral goodness, and by all accounts were better than most, and yet neither one of them had achieved anything of ultimate value. Because all of their accolades and accomplishments and all of their hard work and commitment ended up being insufficient before God. Because, as we've said, being a Christian is not so much about what you do, but who you are before God that matters. And both of these men needed to become something new. Now this reminds me of uh, the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus back in John 3, if you remember. Uh, Nicodemus was another upstanding, righteous man who kept the law, the practices uh, of, of the faith. And he comes to Jesus wanting to understand who Jesus is, and Jesus' response to him is that if a person is to see the kingdom of God, then they must be born again. 
In other words, they need to become something new. In other words, no measure of success or moral achievement was sufficient in order for one to see the kingdom of God. But rather, even the most moral among us need to consider who they are before God, before what they do ever matters. And so the question, I think, becomes, who then are you before God? In what do you find your identity and your purpose? What do you think is most significant about who you are? You know, I consider, when I consider Paul and I consider Cornelius, both of them had significant achievements to look to. Paul, he, was, he had all these academic achievements. He was a brilliant man. Success, morality, great influence. We saw that last week. Cornelius, again, great success, prestige, power, morality. These were all things that he found, they found their identities in. And yet when they're confronted with Jesus, none of it was sufficient. So I ask for all of us, where do we look to? What are the things that we find ourselves most proud of? What do we identify with? And of course, I would then have to say, are those things, which may be very good and right things, are they the most primary way that you identify? Are they the thing that you look to for the most amount of identity and purpose? Because for the Christian, that's no longer, that ought to no longer be the case. Because when one has an encounter with Jesus, that then becomes the identity. Now becoming unified to Christ, as we looked at and considered last week, being unified to Jesus is the primary identity, and then everything else takes second chair. And so I, again, ask you, is that the case for you? Do you see your primary identity as your successes or the things that you desire to be? Or is your primary identity rooted in what Jesus has accomplished for us? Now, what's interesting about all the different ways that we tend to find our identity, so many of those things are so incredibly fragile, momentary, and ultimately never produce the kind of identity that we really do want. I mean, if you've known people, or maybe you have been the person, or you currently are the person who finds your ultimate identity and purpose in academic successes, or career successes, or your financial stability, or your physical beauty, or your ethnic or racial identity, or your sexual identity, or your politics, whatever those things might be, if you find your ultimate and true purpose there, you'll find it is fragile, it is fleeting, and it never produces the kind of purpose and rest that you're seeking. And there's no foundation that can possibly compare to finding one's purpose in the person and work of Jesus, the one who has created us, the one who desires to accomplish his will through us. And Peter and Cornelius needed to get to the point where they realized that, that it was not going to be about what they did, but it was ultimately about who they are, which was one who has been unified to Jesus. So we have to start there because I'm about to make a hard turn. And if we haven't gotten that point straight, this next hard turn is going to be really tough for us. Because ultimately, we see two things happening in this passage. We see this unity to Christ, this reorientation to the person of Jesus, in order that we might also be unified with others. Now, I've found uh, in my experience, 
that hostilities and alienation that exists amongst people really in large parts is because other people are not what we think they should be. Does that make sense? Isn't that often the root cause of why we are alienated from others? We have uh, these deep hostilities. We think others should be something different. And when they're not, it creates a tension that then divides. And for some, we assume ourselves better than others, and therefore we don't want to associate with them. Uh, For others, maybe it's just a matter of those people are so different that they make me feel uncomfortable, and so I don't want to be near them. Whatever the, whatever the issue might be. But for the Christian, that's just not sufficient. It's not sufficient to stop there. At solely not wanting to associate with someone who is different or we wish would be different. Because the work of Christ, which changes who we are, also then unifies Christians together in Jesus. Which, not, which means we are now one with them. So we have to wrestle with what does it mean then to be unified with them. You know, Ephesians 2 tells us that uh, through the work of Jesus, he tears down the walls of hostility. And this is the other major thing that we see coming through the story with Cornelius. Now, as I said, Cornelius, he was a Gentile. And though he trusted the God of Israel, he was never fully welcomed into the people of God of Israel. And yet, here's what's interesting. Here's why this is such a significant turn in the book of Acts. The inclusion of the Gentiles had always been God's intention for his people. If you remember all the way back in Genesis 22, when God made uh, his covenant with Abraham, he said that he would bless the nations through Abraham's line, a line that would eventually produce Jesus himself. In Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 61 and Psalm 46, we see God speaking of his glory being on display before all the nations. In Revelation 7, it gives us this picture, this ultimate vision of God's redemptive plan, which is that every tribe, nation, and tongue would worship before the throne of God. And so Cornelius here becomes the first Gentile convert to Christianity, which is of great significance because it's always been God's intention that there be this one people that he calls to himself. And here, though, is the problem. This is where all this now comes together. That just because God has accomplished this unity across difference didn't mean that his people were quite ready to embrace it. I mean, just consider what it took to make Acts 10 happen. Right? The first thing that we see is that God comes to Peter in a vision. And in that vision, God, in essence, tells Peter that he can no longer consider the Gentiles to be unclean. And then he calls Peter to go to Cornelius, a Gentile. And then God goes to Cornelius and through angels tells Cornelius to bring Peter to his home. So I draw that out because it's worth noting that it took supernatural intervention to get these two men into the same room. And for good reason. I mean, Cornelius represents the empire. I mean, though he was a God-fearer, he was also part of the system that was oppressing the nation of Israel. And so from Peter's perspective, why would he want to be in the home of a dirty Gentile who's oppressing his people? And for Cornelius... 
Remember who he was. He was an accomplished, educated, wealthy, respected man who was so impressive that angels took note of him. Peter was a fisherman. I mean, what could a low-class Peter possibly teach this powerful Cornelius? And the the tension is palpable in the reading. Now, granted, what I'm about to say, I might be reading a little bit into it, but I don't think I'm far off here. Because we know know quite a bit about Peter. We know that Peter is hot-tempered. We've seen that throughout the Gospels. Uh, We know that Peter had a particular disdain for Gentiles. And here's what I find to be interesting. When he arrives at the home of Cornelius, listen to what he says in verse 28. He says, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Earlier this week when I was studying, I laughed out loud when I read that. Because you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like a little kid being forced by his mom to go and play with a weird kid in the neighborhood. That's what it sounds like. Because he basically says, listen, I'm here because God told me to come. Oh, and God told me I'm not allowed to call you dirty anymore. (laughs) I don't know, maybe he said it with a nice tone of voice. I don't know, but it made me laugh. You can feel the tension that is there. And let me give you another interesting thing that struck me this week. Again, I know I keep drawing in last week, but consider the fact that we looked at the conversion of Paul last week. Paul was an educated, respected man who was also a Roman citizen. Why did God not send Paul to Cornelius? It seems like Cornelius and Paul would have gotten along. They were similar in that they were well-educated, accomplished, important men, both of whom were Roman citizens. Would that not have made for a better interaction? There's a reason that God sent Peter and not Paul. And here's the reason. It's because God was making the point that there is nothing that supersedes one's identity in Jesus. Whether you are a fisherman or a military commander, a poor man or a rich man, educated, uneducated, regardless of one's ethnic or racial identity, those who might have otherwise been mortal enemies are now unified in Christ as one. And Peter and Cornelius needed to be humbled into that reality. It is for this reason that the Christian has more with other Christians from vastly different experiences and cultures and perspectives than those with closer affiliation who are not Christians. It's because of this unity that has been accomplished by Jesus. Jesus provides us a new identity, the ultimate identity. The Christian is fundamentally different. And the unity that is accomplished by Christ ought to disrupt every other category of division. And hear me, when we resist that unity, like Peter and Cornelius, God will find ways to humble us into that reality. I mean, this really struck me this week as I think about the state of the church right now. With all the division, it seems like Jesus is gearing up to humble his church. And so here's some practical implications for us, some things we need to consider. The reason why I think God saw it fit for us to end up here in Acts 10 this week of all weeks 
is something that we've been praying for within our services for weeks. And that has been the unity of the church right now. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of partisanship. But we as a church, in particular, are deeply, deeply divided. And of course, this isn't new. The church, and I'll just, we'll just call it the church in America, has always had fracture points. In our nation, the church has always been divided around, around um, uh, racial lines, socioeconomic lines. And you know why? It's usually because Christians at some point had their primary identity in something else other than in Jesus, in their relationship to him. Our churches have always been uh, segregated because Christians, primarily white Christians, always held their whiteness in greater esteem than Christ. Churches have often been divided along class lines because so often it's easier for us to spend time with people that are like us than people that are unlike us. Some would rather spend time with those uh, who are not Christians but of the same class than Christians who are of a different class. There are some who would rather, who are, who are Democrats, who uh, would rather spend time with other Democrats than Christians who take a different political perspective. Again, vice versa. And why? Why is it that we find ourselves falling into those cycles over and over again, where as a church we are constantly divided? Why, at best, do we often feel uncomfortable and maybe at worst feel better than even those within the church of Jesus, those who have also been unified to Jesus? Why is it? Now, with all that said, and all that, we'll consider this a bit more, it's important to know that Christians are not always called to agree with one another. I want to caveat all of this. Being in unity with others is not about agreeing with everything. In fact, we can almost certainly plan on the fact that Christians within the church are going to disagree about things a lot. We can plan on the fact that Christians are going to see sin and sin patterns in others and are therefore responsible to call out those sin patterns. Uh, there's a really interesting example of this that includes both the, the, the people that we're talking about, Paul and Peter. There's a really interesting uh, interaction that's described in Galatians 2 where Paul has to confront Peter for the very attitude that we see in Acts 10. I mean, Peter was marginalizing Gentile Christians. And Paul confronts him and tells Peter that he stands condemned before God for acting out of line with the gospel. In other words, Paul is calling out sin in Peter for his actions were not in line with the gospel. And so also do we have that same command to call out sin where we see it within the body of Christ that we might help each other honor Jesus well. But here's the kicker, and here's what I want us walking away with today with all this in mind, is that we can disagree and we can call out each other's sin. We ought to, but we are called to do all of that in love. Jesus, in John 13, says that people will know that we are followers of him based on how we love one another. And this, my friends, is why God sent Peter to Cornelius 
because God is growing Peter and Cornelius by insisting that they love one another across divides that otherwise would have kept them separated. And right now, the Church of Christ is deeply divided, again, along political and racial and other dividing lines. And there are Christians who have aligned themselves deeply with other identity markers that are not Christ. And functionally, they no longer see themselves as unified to Jesus first and foremost. And I say that as though it's something that's out there, but it's also here. I mean, we are all tempted to do that kind of thing, to find other identity markers and place them above Jesus. And I know this to be true because you can watch the ways that we interact with one another. So often we dishonor Christ by trusting this moment that we're in politicians or ideologies to idolatrous degrees. Or we refuse to love brothers and sisters in Christ across these dividing lines, instead uh, desiring to demonize them or marginalize them or ignore or patronize them. We'd rather too often score points against some political rival than to extend grace and understanding to a brother or sister. And I know that there are really important reasons why there's so much disagreement, why there's so much tension And those are important reasons that Christians need to be willing to stand up for what they believe to be right and true. But hear me, if that truth is not communicated with love, then even though you're right, you could still very much be wrong. When Christ is our primary identity, it will make us loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. And I don't know, maybe I spend too much time on social media watching the ways that Christians interact with each other, but the disagreements rarely ever reflect that kind of spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And that to me says there's something fundamentally wrong with how we identify ourselves. And so, if you're here and part of our church, I can't speak for everyone and I can't encourage everyone but I can encourage us. We are leading up to an election uh, that's going to have a major fallout no matter who wins. It's already had a fallout. We're going to see it even more severely uh, November 4th. If you are a Christian, and especially one who calls REH home, I need you to be ready to put on the full display of Christ's love, especially with fellow Christians. Again, this does not mean that we won't disagree. It does not mean that we won't call each other uh, out when there's sinful behaviors or wrong thinking that needs to be addressed, but we do it in love. And we do it in a way that reflects the unity that we have with one another. As we step into this week and the month and even longer, as things inevitably are going to get fiercely contentious, I need us to remember what it took for you to know Jesus, what it took for your political rivals, to know Jesus. I mean, Romans 5 tells us that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And if that knowledge does not humble you into the floor while at the same time sending you soaring to the heavens, then I wonder if we've believed it yet. And I wonder if we need to take a step back and look upon Jesus again, see the beauty of the work of what he has done, 
and allow that beautiful work to then shape us to the extent that we're able to now show love to others, even those that we might disagree. If Peter and Cornelius can end up in the same room and see each other as brothers, you and I can sit in the same room with all different types of people. Because if they're a Christian, we have more in common with them because we are unified to Jesus, more in common with them than anyone else. May we see it that way. And may God do what he needs to do in us that we might humble ourselves, as James 4 tells us, instead of being humbled by him. May we we pursue this unity that Christ has accomplished for us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord. Uh, God, above everything else, that you have accomplished a great work in Jesus that has made it possible for us to know you. And by the work of your Spirit, we're unified to Jesus, and now that radically transforms who we are. That ultimately you care primarily about who we are, not primarily about what we do. And so may we be a people who are unified to Jesus and see ourselves that way. And remember that that is primarily who we are. And as we look upon what Jesus has done to accomplish that, would it then make us a people who pursue relationship with those that might be very different than ourselves. May your spirit help us to live into the unity that has already been accomplished. And may we honor you, God, in the way that we disagree. And we pray again, finally, for your church right now, deeply divided. God, would you help us to be gracious, firm, about what we believe to be true, but also gracious and loving. God, may you be um, glorified in the way that we do this, and may others know that we are your followers based on how we love one another. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.